Blog Talk Radio. was 
make sure you're logged in, make sure uh, everyone's on. I have a few different alarms, but uh, that help call-in number is 646-595-2118. I already see a few people logging in, so thank you guys for joining us. We appreciate it. I'm going to start by sharing um, tonight again. We're on Stop Child Abuse Now, scan number 3333, which I shared earlier, my favorite number. Um, and I want to just introduce our special guest tonight. Um, her name is Astrid Ross. Um and uh, I'm going to just share her bio, okay? So Astrid is um, a wife, a mother of five adult children, and two grandchildren. She's a former daycare owner of six years and has worked as, you know, in the early childhood education industry uh, for preschool, kindergarten teacher. She was, you know, there serving for eight years a month, um, what is it? Uh, she served at uh, one of these preschools as a director, elementary, middle school as a principal, and state accredited and licensed preschool. All right, so eighth grade. Um, now, this school is called Montessori. I just want to make, I'm not sure I'm going to have her correct me when she comes on, Montessori or Montessori School for 17 years, executive director of Mental Health Support Network a nonprofit geared towards better mental health care for all Georgians, lead of the newly created Gwinnett Community Mental Health Task Force, mm. PTSA president of Berkmar High School. I'm a mental health advocate and NAMI educator for their ending the silence in our own voices and share your story with law enforcement and basic training I am also a mental health clinician providing services as a Georgia certified peer specialist for parents of children who have mental health diagnosis or substance abuse. And so I'm really looking forward to, um, you know, to interviewing Astrid. I see her doing, I personally have seen her doing a lot of community service in our community, especially in the area of mental health with NAMI. Uh, And just, you know, herself, her commitment and dedication in the area of education and um, supporting parents and just, you know, so I'm really excited about tonight's show. Um, So without further ado, I'm going to open up our guest, Mike, and um, introduce Ms. Astrid. Good evening. Thank you for joining us tonight. Hi. How's everybody? Hi. Thank you, Dr. Nancy. Thank you for joining us tonight. Um, you know, like I said earlier, I have personally, you know, watched and gleaned from the sidelines and watched you as you have been serving the community. Um, it does not go unnoticed. Um, your commitment for leadership, your commitment for servanthood, which is really number one in my book, um, for service. And, um, and you know, so I want to make sure that we share some, I know you have a lot of accolades, and there's a lot of work that you have put forth. Um, but if you may start kind of at the earlier years, um, wherever you want to start, um, are you originally from Georgia? Did your family migrate here? Let's start kind of at the base beginning and talk a little bit about your childhood and then kind of work our way up 
so that we can understand how did you get to this level? Because a lot of people will look at you and go, wow, she's like so, so strong and so well put together and everything's perfect. But a lot of people don't know the story before the the story, right? So I just want to make sure that we open up um, to that story, how it led you to where you are today. Absolutely, absolutely. And definitely, definitely we'll start with humble, humble beginnings um, because I'm, I'm a Georgia piece. I'm a little black girl who was born at Grady. We call ourselves Grady Babies if you're from Atlanta. <laughs> um, I was born and raised in East Point, Georgia, which is out uh, south of the downtown area close to the airport. Um, I was born and raised there. A family was raised there. And I pretty much stayed in Georgia my entire life until my young adulthood um, met a Morehouse um, alumni. We got married and started a family. Um, I am in the 50s age range. Um, that kind of dates me, you know, back in Atlanta. We grew up during the time where we had uh, Wayne Williams murder cases and we couldn't kind of navigate the streets as young kids kind of like the generation before us did. So, you know, we had that uh, kind of angst and anxiety as young people not being able to have, you know, the freedom to explore and kind of navigate your own, you know, communities. Um, but as a child, I was already coming out of a traumatic start. Um, I'm a suicide loss survivor. Um, my father passed away. He succumbed to suicide when I was 15 months old. Um, he was a Vietnam veteran, a um, pre-med student, um, had a lot of accolades from college, high school, um, was a newlywed and had a brand-new baby. And in the blink of an eye, he had taken his own life. And um, from what I understood, because I didn't come, that knowledge didn't come to me until I was in my 20s, um, I was affected by a cultural stigma of not wanting to have a conversation about suicide or mental health or the family could have still been dealing with the trauma and not being able to explain it to a child that young. So I grew up not knowing how my father passed away, only that he was absent. Um, and I was told that he had a heart condition. Kid, I'm being told my father died at 26 from a heart condition. Of course, as a kid, I'm thinking I got a heart condition. So I'm grappling with that little small amount of knowledge. And, again, being a black girl, being raised in the 70s and 80s in Atlanta, Georgia, you know, in lower to middle class families, you know, kind of paints a picture of, you know, we were just what black America was like, Um wasn't until I um, met my sweetheart um, from college and we got married. Um, this was in 95 when I accidentally came across the VA paperwork that my mom needed a copy of my father's death certificate that gave me details of his passing. Um, and at that point, we were I was married for some time and um, I had just had uh, my third son and I immediately went into a depression. Um, and, again, 
bringing back waves of memories and understanding of what, you know, childhood was like without having details, um, pushing back memories of a difficult childhood of a mother who had herself dealt with child abuse and had run away from home to marry a man who was almost 10 years her, her senior and um, had a child and then to lose that man and having to raise that child on your own, you know, those are things that started to flood back in my memory because from what I remember, you know, a lot of it we tried to push down. Personally, I pushed those memories down just to move forward. And, And it wasn't until I got that kind of brick wall of information that it all flooded at one point and I crashed and burned. So I went through a severe depression at that point. I think I was 26 um, when I got that information. And um, myself having to deal and process all of it, you know, being a mother myself, you know, knowing how he passed away, um, dealing with now, oh, now that makes sense. Oh, now that makes sense. You know, trying to put two and two together with broken memories, um, you know, dealing with, you know, what my mother could have been dealing with, you know, maybe that explains it, you know, maybe the reminders and, you know, her having to do it on her own and, you know, it was it was so much to process. And even to this day at 53, I'm still processing those things, you know, as a mother of adult children now and knowing, you know, spending 20 years as an early childhood educator and looking at young children and the effects of trauma and dysfunction on young children, you know, those things come back full circle. Um, And right now, you know, even though I am in the spaces that I am, it is an intentional resilience that has placed me in those spaces. And those things have piqued my interest of being in early childhood education when we saw, you know, issues of, you know, not getting the resources that you needed, the academic um, opportunities were not there, you know, so those are things that sometimes trauma can bring about, you know, things that you don't want to repeat, and sometimes they can be eye-openers of places you don't want to go, and and that's kind of where I took that trauma of wanting to help children get to a better place than, than I was because I was a perpetual, I was always in a perpetual depression. I was the saddest kid ever, not knowing why I always had the sadness, not knowing why I was always either between sadness and anger, you know, either between what I understand now to know anxiety and depression. Um, So that struggle in childhood, you know, brought about a lot of desire to do better. So I became that helicopter mom, even with my own children. You know, I started reaching out and, you know, making sure that I could provide resources to young children, to families, so that they could live in more functional, you know, environments and circles and and having access to resources, um, making sure that when you know better, you do better. Um, So those are all things that, you know, I wish, you know, we had had access to, you know, as children you know, as 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 an entire family, getting a holistic approach towards support um, when as a kid you can't figure it out. You're just, you know, going through emotions and kind of riding the waves of trauma. Um, so it's kind of what got me to keep that interest for early childhood education just because of the things that I dealt with as a child of dealing with what my mom went through and her own struggles um, and it was funny because even though we didn't make a 
personal, you know, directed effort towards it. It also drove where my children actually chose their career field. Um, and they all went into, you know, mental health and healthcare fields. Um, so I, I think that there's something to say about, you know, not all trauma can be have negative effects. Sometimes that trauma can push you towards empowerment, towards doing better, towards finding resources to supporting others. And there's a lot that can be said about, you know, um, helping others in, in in service of self. You know, there's a catharsism that comes with, you know, helping and, and giving and charity and, and philanthropy and has some type of physical uh, uh, manifestation or, or some um, well-being that comes when a person is able to give of themselves and, and to see or to remove someone else's suffering. Um, so I, I think that, you know, people that go through trauma, and, and this is a good thing that we see, you know, a lot of organizations that build off of lived experiences and, you know, letting people take, you know, what they've been through and help others use it as a roadmap of where not to go, where the danger, you know, of, um, areas are, or, you know, to help other people process what they've been through. There's one thing that we know about trauma is that, you know, it, it's very subjective and people kind of deal with it in their own individual way, you know, but having more people, you know, kind of document lived experiences and how they handle it, um, seeing as that, you know, things like behavioral health really, you know, don't have a lot of objective data to give you um, to give you instant diagnosis or or tests to say, okay, this is, you know, what this is. We depend a lot on people's vocabulary, the mental health vocabulary, to tell you what they're experiencing to come to a diagnosis. So we, we need people to become more educated, you know, about behavioral health, about their own mental health and well-being. We need people to speak up more about their wellness and their trauma. Um, the speaking up about the trauma, again, you know, people make connections. You know, we don't want to feel alone in our trauma. We don't want to um, feel like there's no hope because when we see that people have been through it, they have survived it, and they have learned how to carry that, you know, that in itself can be uh, a lifesaver to some people who have just experienced trauma and getting ready to learn how to package and, and carry that trauma long term. Right. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So these are some things that so, we definitely. Um, mm-hmm. Go ahead. These are some things that we definitely. Please finish that sentence. Yeah, there's some things that we definitely have to make sure that we have that we have uh, the available resources because one of the biggest things that is a challenge for us right now is just having the conversation, being able to have people that you can have a safe space, uh, a comfortable um, area, um, people who listen and who can dialogue, um, people who can listen without judgment. Um, I think that in itself can give some inspiration to help people want to, you know, talk about their experiences even more. Um, because, again, most people think that 
when it comes to mental health, it's all about going to see a clinician. When mental health is so much more vast than that, you know, it's it's what you do from the time you wake up until the time you go to sleep, how you sleep, what you eat, what you intake, you know, what your output, you know, and we don't realize how much control we have over our own well-being um, that we talk up and health to just, you know, a clinician visit. I can agree. That's so important to really, you know, a lot of people, they're like, oh, I have a doctor, uh, a back doctor, a neck doctor, a brain doctor, a, a breast doctor, a gynecologist, or this or that. And I'm like, okay, but you know what? Me, I have a coach. I have a, a counselor. I mean, you, you got to have other people as well that you can check in with and that you can also, you know, take care of your mental health. I wanted to, and I had a lot of things that I wrote down, but I wanted to come back for a minute to your childhood, okay? I wanted you to share with our listeners a part of your part of your trauma that has led you on this walk. So you went through the trauma of your father. That's a big trauma. Um, not being told the truth of how he, you know, how he passed away, learning about it at a later age. That's very traumatic. Um, have you experienced any other levels of trauma outside? Don't get me wrong. This one right here, <laughs> that pops the case. I wouldn't, um, yeah. you know, that right there, I haven't experienced the loss of a parent. So that's the area, especially, you know, and, and I wish we even had more time because, you know, you shared he was a vet and, and just some of his history. And I know that when we met at the state capitol, um, you were there and you were also, okay, we have Bob. Okay, Bob has questions. So I'm going to bring him in. I know when we met, we were at the state capitol in Georgia, uh, and you mm-hmm. were advocating you know, not just for veterans, but for mental health at the whole. Uh, but you had a special area in your heart for that area of for the veterans. I do want you to take us back to your childhood for a minute. Um, but before we go there into the childhood, I want, if it's okay with you, may I allow uh, one of our guests to um, to join us? Sure. Okay, one of our uh, panel members, let me go in here. Okay, so um, Ms. Kelly will probably unmute it. Okay, I got it. All right, so go ahead. Hey, Bob. hey Nancy, good day, darling. How are you? Uh, uh, the lady that's sharing. Uh, I just want to say that, um, yeah, your story re- resonates strongly with me. And um, uh, how can I put it? For me, all, all the all the damage was done during the first seven years. Um, and I believe, and I'd never give advice, but this would be my recommendation to anybody listening. Uh, I, I knew I couldn't change my childhood, but I had a feeling I could go back and heal it. So I did. So I would recommend to anybody to go and do that work, healing the wounds of childhood. And um, John Bradshaw was a great resource for me. With my own career with depression, (laughs) I 
career, uh, which spanned 25 years, it was finally the pain that I was feeling that gave me the incentive and gave me the energy to go within and do the work. Ooh, yeah, and where I am now, um, and this most this is I've been researching this stuff since 1984, and I know we're all unique and we're all on our own journey. But after living with depression and loving the way that um, lived experience, it's gaining more credibility globally. Because for me, the only people that are expert on depression are the people, the normal everyday people, that have actually worked through it. You know, they are the experts. Um, and wherever I look now, I'm part of many groups in Australia that are uh, gaining a foothold and actually overriding the, the current narrative of psychiatrists and psychologists. And this may sound weird, but I don't mind being weird. It's my belief uh, and the result of my own life experience. This is my witness testimony. For me, there is no such thing as mental illness. All these weird behaviors that have been labeled as um, mental illness, they are just the body's way of telling me or telling the person that they're not living their truth. It's like the body knows, the body knows. Anyway, that may be controversial, and I'd love to do a show maybe in the new year on that topic and discuss it and just support my thesis. But... Good on you, darling. Um, yeah, you're, for me, you're part of a beautiful family uh, known uh, colloquially as wounded healers. And, uh, and it's like, until you've lived it, how can you really pass judgment on it, you know? So, yeah, good on you, darling. And I'll shut up now because I could go on for hours. But... <laughs> Thanks, Nancy, for letting me share. You're fine. You're fine. You know, uh, Bob, and I will hit you up another night to have you as a guest, because I know you have a lot to give, and it will take a lot more than just a few minutes. But thank you for joining, and thank you for giving your input. Um, Astrid, did you want to make a comment to uh, what Bob shared? Sure, sure. Thank you. And thank you for your, thank you. Thank you for those words and you're absolutely correct. There, there comes a point, and I think with some people, there's a tipping point where you say either you are consumed by the ride or, or drowning or you're learning how to surf the wave. Because, again, it's about learning how to carry the trauma. Because trauma doesn't go away. It, it, it's like grief. You know, people ask, you know, how will they deal with that, how will they process that? Well, it doesn't go away, of course, because we have memories. We just learn how to package the grief and then how to carry the weight of it. And the same happens with the traumas, you know, especially for those traumas that happen in childhood. They never go away. You know, you learn either how to package it and, and walk with it and package it and carry it, you know, or you become affected to the point where you can't. I would. Hi there, this is uh, Victoria. Yeah. I'm sorry. Sorry, Bob Bob was about to say something. 
Go ahead, Bob, and then I'm going to mute you for a second because Ms. Victoria was coming. But go ahead, Bob, finish your thought. Yeah. Um, um, I beg to disagree about um, trauma lasts forever. Healing the wounds of my childhood um, and being able... My healing was not complete until I was able to forgive my abusers. And for me now... Um, I feel totally content with me. I totally trust in my own process. And for me, I have healed my childhood trauma. So, and I'm just a simple bloke, and if I can do it, other people can. Okay, I will show that now. <laughs> but for me, it is doable. It is doable. I've done it. Thank you, Bob. Thank you for sharing. All right, so, um, Ms. Victoria, I know you were getting ready to share something. Go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't. Sorry, Bob. I didn't mean to cut into you. But um, yeah, Astra, thank you for all that information. Um, um, I can't even imagine having to live, um, you know, like through the experiences you have as a child. Um, yeah. I'm just uh, real grateful that you're here and, and just amazed at uh, what you're doing today. But um, I, I did notice that you've got NAMI on your. Um, I looked at your Facebook page, mm-hmm. and um, when you click on it, it actually goes to a beauty website thing that's written in another language that says NAMI. It's a beauty website. It's, I don't think it's NAMI that you're talking about. Aren't you talking about the National Association for the Mentally Ill? That's the one I'm talking about. Yes, ma'am. Okay, well, it doesn't. I just want to let you know your link does not hook up to that. It's not <laughs> no, it's not hooking up to it. I just want, I want to get that out before we did anything else. <laughs> I didn't want to forget to say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. And I was, yeah, I was interested. Now, you've got how many kids? Five. How many of your own children? Five children. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. I got two. <laughs> two adult children. <laughs> Um, so, um, um, did you go like therapy and things like that to deal with some of this stuff? I'm just curious, you know, I'm, I'm 62 years old and, um, I escaped at 21 from my biological father and I started out in therapy and I'm still in therapy and I feel like I'll be on my my healing journey to the last breath I take. You know, I've asked people have asked if I've healed. Um, and I said, I'm on a healing journey. Um, I said, cause I want to continue to grow and change and learn and, you know, that, that's kind of my vision for my life and um, help as many people as I can along the way. Um, I'm a Minnesota ambassador for NASCA. And uh, I, um, I, have you been on this show before? No, no, I haven't. Oh, well, welcome. Welcome to our NASCA family. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh-huh. Yeah. You could ask me about therapy. So, no, as as uh, as I mentioned, I was a little black girl from Atlanta. We don't go to therapy. That was the mantra. No. That, <laughs> That's that why I asked. Yeah, that was yeah. one of our cultural stigmas. You know, black people don't do therapy. You know, so, yeah. no, church was our therapy. Grandma was therapy. Auntie was therapy. School counselors were therapy. It was always an indirect connect to another human being that would bring out, you know, at least, you know, a simple conversation is not, you know, a safe space to be vulnerable enough to talk about those things. And those things didn't come until later in life, you know. And I didn't really start going to therapy, you know, uh, religiously, you know, until I joined NAMI, you know. And then I could actually speak, 
you know, empowered and, and with confidence in saying that, yes, I am living with a mental health disorder and I'm living in recovery, that I am working on myself, I'm making a positive um, um, intentional effort to put supports in place to deal with anxiety and depression, you know, so it, it, that came late. That came late for me. Yeah. Oh, I can hear it straight. <laughs> I've done some big tsunami too. I, I um, uh, put together a workshop for one of the conferences they had. Um, I'm in Minnesota, Minnesota as I call it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm really interested in too, um, the, you were talking about the Montessori school and things like that. I'm interested in that too because, um, you know, April, well, it's ways off, but it's coming up. It's Child Abuse Awareness Prevention Month. And I have a grassroots organization as well as the Minnesota Ambassador for NASCA. Um, but um, but I do an event every year. And um, I'm trying to uh, um, get people involved in that too because uh, I'm bringing about awareness. But it's always interesting to me what educators are doing um, and what people, you know, um, to, to just change this whole mentality of children that um, – Mm. I don't know. There's just there's a whole different thing going on now than there sure was when I was a kid. I you know was born in '62, and uh, there's there's a whole different uh, wave going on of um, trying to help kids understand that like divorce isn't their fault, and if parents got problems, it's not their fault. And you know, I I think way back we used to get blamed for so much, and there was really no information out there to tell us any different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That was big, and that. Yes, thank you for sharing that. That that was really important. Uh, for Astrid, I wanted to just say thank you for sharing cultural um, history because you know it's so important to have cultural awareness and education. And like you said, the area where you were from that was not normal. Um, mm-hmm. was not normal. I'm talking to people and having that support therapy was not normal. And that's your right. truth. Um, and so that's why you have focused your efforts in the area of education and mentorship and um, and also to be able to support the, um, the importance of, of um, mental health services and how stigma has affected the community, right? People be like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, uh, stigmatizing um, certain people, and then that makes people shut down, and it makes people just kind of revert and and stay mm-hmm. away from um, sharing their story. So again, we want to just congratulate you for coming on tonight, and also for your community service. Um, I want to kind of, if I may, just kind of go back, and I don't mean to go there. And if you don't feel like talking about it, you don't have to. But the more research that you did, and if you don't want to talk about the topic, we could switch. Just tell me switch. Mm-hmm. And we're learning more about um, how your father took his life. How did that have an impact in your in your thought process? In your, I mean, you're here with NAMI. I'm also mm-hmm. a part of the NAMI family. And we're also a part of the NASCA family because now you're here. But Learning about your father's history, mental health, mental illness, how did you, what made you go into this NAMI area? Was it 
from supporting and or learning about him? Was it from your own personal experiences? Have you, I don't know, if you, have you been through any form of abuse or any type of trauma personally outside of your father? I know that's a, a really wide question, but I just want to make sure that you really understand where your expertise and where you're coming from in the area as far as mental health goes. Right. Well, well, I'll I'll actually answer that question first um, because it's funny that you say that because it wasn't until I started to delve into the history, you know, and kind of compartmentalize so that I can process the gravity of the information that I had in my hand at that point. At NAMI to me was like a tether because that information kind of blew me out of the water. And I was, I felt just unstable for a long period of time. The only thing really that tethered me to earth was my children, my, my very young children, and, and um, the, the knowledge that as a mother I had to be stable. You know, so I, I needed something. I, I came to NAMI very late. I didn't come to NAMI until 2020. This is during the, the COVID years, as we call them, um, when, you know, my family, we, we sat down and decided that we wanted to give back to the community and how we were going to do it, and I'll come to that um, in a minute. But when it came to understanding the trauma, it, it was too much for me. I, I couldn't process it. It was too much as a brand-new mother and wife myself to process a father who has such potential leaving at that point. You know, this this, this in itself is, and, and my kids are so funny because it's funny how you see, you know, you can step back out of yourself and look at the macro of your life and, and things that are that you can't see the details of when you're right in it. Um, but I, I love murder mysteries. I, I love Law and Order, Hannibal, like I, I loved all the suspense and horror. I, I loved it all because I found out why I loved it because, again, my, my father's life and the completion of his life is still an untold story that I don't have all the details on. And it's still, for me, something that I'm still in the process of digging and trying to get the truth. Um, because even though I have a portion of the truth, I don't have the complete truth. Um, because there were things that my mother, you know, she didn't herself remember all of the details because of the the nature of that trauma. You know, she said that she was he was getting ready for work that morning, and she was walking down the hallway, and she he met her in distress, holding his throat, and you know there was foam and vomiting coming from the mouth. Well, later on, she gave me details that the back door was open, and no one else was supposed to be in the house. It was like six in the morning. You know, he was, you know, a veteran, and he would bring, you know, um, samples home from the hospital. You know, so I'm hearing this as a 20-something-year-old, and I'm like, huh? Wait a minute. Hold on. For death? Purposefully? Um, There was an episode of blood being thrown on the wall, and he would bring home samples. He was a lab tech at two of the hospitals. So there's so so much incompletion. But as an adult, when I tried to dig for that information, mom doesn't remember her age, now she's dealing with dementia. Before my grandmother passed away some years back, I would ask her and she would refuse to tell me because she didn't want to, again, relive her own trauma of losing her son. You know, so this is, it, the trauma is still in progress for me because there's no, there's no resolve, you know. So in that in itself, 
that's where I am as a 53-year-old wife of 32 years, mother of five adult children and grandmother of two, still having this unresolved trauma that I want to I wanna resolve it. I want to get to, you know, more information from the VA. The VA sends me records that show that there's no mental health history. They don't send me death certificates. They don't send me – so I, I'm still processing that even as uh, an older woman. Now, what it caused me to do as a mother, when I was a mother, when I first found this out, I became a helicopter mom. So I, I was one of those tiger helicopter moms, you know, because at that point when I got that information, I had realized that my father had some unresolved, undiagnosed mental health condition that budding bright careers to be cut off and for him to lose his family. So, of course, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I have to watch my children so they don't do the same thing. And what I saw over the years, I saw these highly successful kids, just like my father, who possibly could have passed away from his own high-functioning depression, all these high-functioning kids. My oldest daughter just got her doctorate in psychiatric nursing. While everybody was clapping hands every time she got a degree, I'm shaking in my boots and I'm thinking, baby, are you okay? Are you taking self-help days? Are you taking care of yourself? Are you just going to school to go to school? Are you trying to burn out? So I was that type of mom. You know, my oldest son got his bachelor's degree in psychology. He runs a nonprofit called Barber Therapy. Uh, my middle son, he'll, he likes to read or refer to him. He will soon be the number one wrestling champion of Greco-Roman wrestling next year in competition. And he's a life university wrestling coach, and he's a psych major as well and has his own podcast. Uh, my youngest son just got into the next program with Gwinnett County uh, Fire and Rescue. He also... Um, was a high school wrestler that won a state championship, two of the sons did. And um, then my baby girl is, um, she's at Georgia State, she's working on her second degree um, and going into, she's an RBT for the state for children with autism, and she's in the deaf studies and communications program. So as you can see, we have children who are high functioning, and that was always as a mother, I, I, and, and maybe it was me dealing with the depression or me before I became a, um, a member of NAMI, not speaking in these negative tones, but then everything was negative. Everything was, you know, bare-knuckled. Everything was anxiety. What are, what are they going to do? How high are they going to go? Are they going to be able to achieve this? Are they going to crash and burn? So that was, that was kind of how that affected me as a mother and a wife. Um, now, after we decided as a family to start a nonprofit geared towards mental health, um, my, my entire, the, the narrative changed. It completely changed. And, and NAMI was one of the things that empowered me. It became my voice and my strength. There were other people like me. You know, I could speak openly. I, I, people have gone through what I've been through. You know, there is a, a plethora of resources. There's, there's, there's the largest, the second largest grassroots organization in America geared towards mental health and wellness. Um, there's opportunities to give back. Um, there's ways to use your lived experiences to help others. So NAMI for me was like a no-brainer. NAMI really is what put me on the pedestal, you know, to tell me you're okay and, yes, you can do it. You can live a functional life. You can give back. You can do right. everything that you need to, you know, and you're not going to be judged right. or stigmatized for it. Right. Things with NASCA, 
and we're in the NASA show right now. And with NAMI, and we're also members of NAMI, is that we're in a place that is a safe, safe space. We're in a safe space with other survivors, mm-hmm. others who have been through some of the similar instances. Some of us, uh, and we share on the, on the show, have been through child abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, all levels of trauma. And those areas, we've been able to, um, I'm a counselor, I have clients in the area of counseling, and I'm able to share um, some of my story, a small amount, you know, I do peers now, you know, people will, will look at us and go, they'll look at the after picture, that picture of us gleaming and smiling and shining but they really don't know the testimony behind that. As a child, uh, and this is, NASA is really, you know, adult survivors of child abuse. What did we go through at one point when we were vulnerable, when we didn't have that strength that, of course, led us to be better parents and or led us to encourage our children and or led us to, um, to share a platform for other survivors, right? Uh, and the stigma that's associated with mental health, the stigma that's associated with mental health diagnosis, whether you're dealing with depression, anxiety. Um, there's so many different, um, you know, diagnoses. And then when we're talking about culture, and a lot of times when we go into the area of diversity. Inclusion education, diversity, equity, and inclusion education. Um, it is important for us to share some of the things that we've been through so that we can better educate our community um, and be able to continue to move forward. Um, now, you shared earlier that you had a flood of memories and it took you into an area of crashed, you know, you crashed into a depression. Um, I definitely can um, can relate, uh, and many of our listeners tonight can relate. Um, before I go into that, I want to make sure. Uh, let me open up. I want to make sure that we allow our guests. Uh, if anyone has a comment, first I want to check uh, with Philip if he has a comment. That would be great. Hey Philip. Um, I don't. Hello, I don't have anything to say today. Okay, Philip. Thank you, Philip. Thank you. All right. So we have Paula on here. I'm going to make sure I open up the mic um, in case you would like to share a comment. Can you unmute yourself? Okay, so that's okay. Um, a lot of times, people just want to listen, you know. Not everyone's ready to speak and to share, and that's okay. And that's why we create these platforms to help support and to share and to create the safe spaces where people can at some point 
feel comfortable coming on and sharing or speaking and all of that. Um, it's important to help other people to process their own recovery or to process what recovery looks like by being examples and um, being a light in darkness. I'm going to personally say when it comes to NAMI, me, well, first, first I want to say when it comes to NASA, I've been able to, I have this platform here, um, all of us do, um, my beautiful sister um, and, and co-host Victoria Kelly tonight, I'm sure she that. We've been able to be a voice for the voiceless in our own ways and be able to push advocacy. Miss um, Kelly, I just want to know what you thought about that. Well, yeah, that um, I like the points that you're making, Dr. Nancy, about um, um, a lot of people might, you know, just want to come on and listen, and, hey, we really want to have you on here. You know, it's really important when people call in and support our guests. That means a lot to us. Um, and I also want to say that, like you were saying earlier, Dr. Nancy, we don't, you know, like you and I are, you know, being hosting. I could, I could have never imagined five years ago that I was going to be, you know, one of the hosts on a blog talk radio show or, you know what I mean? Um, could never imagine 10 years ago that, um, well, actually when I met Bill, I would never even imagine telling my story about my child abuse, you know, and I, I wouldn't tell anybody that, you know, I talked about domestic violence and being used in systems of prostitution, pornography, but <laughs> I thought be stuff, you know, and um, so I just want to, you know, thank you, Astrid, also for, you know, coming on and, and because we all have these different uh, histories and backgrounds and, and family dynamics and everything. Um, I had my brother on last week, actually, and, and that was quite the <laughs> putting together of uh, combination things. And uh, it's, it's really uh, interesting how many of us start out thinking that, you know, we're so ashamed and I just want to tell the audience, um, you know, um, the shame goes back on the abuser. The abuser is the one that, you know, needs to carry the guilt, not us. And if you're not ready to speak out, that is okay. That is wonderful. But if you'd like to speak out, um, you can go on the website, nasca.org, N-A-A-S-C-A dot O-R-G. And um, there's a place to click on Blog Talk Radio. And um, there's a name for Kim, if you would like to um, contact her. You can be a guest on our show, and it's, you don't have to have a big presentation or anything. We'll help guide you through. We're, we're really good with um, uh, survivors that have never told their story before. A lot of, matter of fact, a lot of people started out with NASCA telling their story for the first time they ever have and have gone on to do greater things. <laughs> but, but, yeah, that whole thing about, you know, people look at me, too, and they're like, Oh my God, you've been doing all these things since like 1985, and 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 I'm like, yeah, but I didn't. It didn't just happen overnight, right? It didn't just happen overnight. There's a lot. Thank you for saying that. Mm-hmm. That was good. Um, Astrid, I don't know if you would like to comment now. Um, uh, one thing I would like to say for one second before you start a comment. I like the fact that um, Ms. Kelly said, you know, they need to feel the guilt, not us. You know, 
those people that were abusive or hurtful, um, you know, for me personally in our situation as survivors of, for us, child sexual abuse, okay, everybody has different levels to their story. But for us, um, we don't have to carry the shame. And, and anyone listening, you don't have to carry the shame. The abuse does not define you, and it's not your fault. And there's a community of people um, who are here to support you and to remind you that you are not alone. Uh, We just wanted to make sure we put that out there. As far as, you know, other traumas, because there's so many levels of trauma, I think definitely dealing with grief is a severe level of trauma. Um, You know, I'm I'm gonna give your father this is from his um ostrich that you know give your flower flowers where flowers are due. Um thank God, you know, and thank thank him thanking your father and, and I would like to hear his name at some point for his service. You know, thank him for his service and for his ability to give back to others. But I'm going to tell you something. When you're in the military world, the levels of trauma that are experienced, the things that they see, the things that they hear, the things that they experience, the loss that they experience, it affects our mental health. Um, I really do think that um, children of um, military vets, and I had a client who her ex-husband, he took her life. He took, I'm sorry, his life. Um, I really do believe, and, you know, and she did get, of course, you know, compensated uh, to take care of the children, but I really do think that this is serious, and this is something that we have to talk about. Mental health is real, and especially when it comes to the area of our veterans. Um, When I met you, Ms. Astrid, I know I met you at the state capitol. I'm going to bring it back to that. And we're fighting for mental health support and for the community and for services. And you shared a little bit of your story, so I didn't really hear all of your story, but I want to make sure you get a chance to address that area for veterans, if you may. So, again, this is, again, a story that's incomplete because the first time I reached out to the VA to retrieve my father's um, service records was in 2020. Um, I just received a packet in the mail about three months ago from that request from 2020. And probably about 60% of the files that were in there are just uh, undecipherable. I I can barely read it. Um, Copies of things that are redacted that have no context to me in 2023 things that don't make sense, and and then other things that just have no bearing on, you know, anything that I was looking for. Um, So as a, and, you know, just to let everyone know, because of the nature of the way my father took his life, my mom did not receive any any benefits from the military after his passing. So we were raised in poverty. I was raised in poverty. Um, So to put that into context, um, we didn't get the, the family of veteran benefits or, or even, you know, the idea of, you know, that service to this country. 
Um, I, I didn't have any benefit of that, none whatsoever. The only thing I have of my father of, of, in connection with the U.S. Army is his flag that was put on his um, his casket. Um, I've got no benefits from military, nothing, no GI Bill, no no housing, nothing, 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 no insurance, nothing, you know, no support, nothing, you know. So I, I have not benefited from, you know, him serving a country during a time where it was very difficult um, for African Americans to get any type of support, you know, post once they finished their tour of duty. And from what I got from his records, he served as a medic in the military. So he was actually in service as a health care provider to those that were on the battlefield in the Army. So I know he experienced a lot of trauma in that regard. Um, but, again, bare records that gave me no context to the manner of his death or, or even the manner of the service that he provided. So, um, you know, I think we as as a country, have to be better by those who put themselves in service, you know. And even for our family now, I do still have a first responder, and my youngest son is a fireman, and he's going, he's in school, he's in the medics program. So it, it, it unnerves me, you know, when we do these type of services, either, and my grandmother was a police officer, so we go into things like law enforcement, first responders, or even military, you know, these organizations, especially if they're, you know, federally based, you know, should have a better support system, um, definitely better support for those that are dealing with trauma on a day-to-day basis, especially with soldiers. You know, this is something that definitely is, is it needs a whole lot more work um, and much more support and the things that we know within behavioral health and within brain research now about the support of people who deal with high-stress environments, who go to war, and those that deal with um, 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 traumatic um, 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 day-to-day experiences. You know, our brains can't handle that. You know, so when we we do that, we have to take that into account. Are we putting you know, individuals under, you know, things that we know don't have a, a long-standing uh, record for survival. Um, so, I, I, so a lot of those things still go through my mind. So I, I don't have a good taste in my mouth about my father's military service um, just because I don't know if that was a catalyst for what took him away from me or took him away from our family. Um, what has been nice would have been to have a nice, uh, um, um, support system, whether it be support groups for those that serve or families that have dealt with that and, you know, having resources available for those that are, you know, living without parents and family members of those who have given their lives or, or have lost their lives in service, you know, but there there was no support system there, you know. So, you know, it leaves, you know, a bitter taste in the mouth because, you know, losing the potential of someone who was a pre-med student and that had so much, you know, going for him. You know, I, at one point, I, I had uh, an aversion towards military. I remember in high school saying there would be no way I would go into the military, you know, and, and give my life for for what, you know, and then because I was a child mm-hmm. that the military benefit. Wow. And, and that was good. <clears throat> that definitely must have created a lot of trauma like I you know like I shared I personally have not lost anyone to the military I have lost I lost my sister to suicide um in 2020 um I'm a suicide survivor myself 
and I understand how mental how important mental health is and how traumatic it is to lose a loved one to suicide. And I do a lot of advocacy around suicide because of that. Um, Now, when it comes to the area of military personnel, um, I mean, the levels of trauma that they experience after some of the things that they see, because sometimes we watch some of these movies and we see some people get bombed. Um, Their legs will get bombed. Their, Their bodies will get bombed. They will lose one of their favorite brothers who they share a room with. We don't know what they have experienced, the levels of connection that they had with someone who they served with, and then they lose some. That will take somebody into a severe, deep depression. Um, so when uh, when we lose uh, um, Army veterans, to suicide, I'm even though I don't like to use the word, I'm not surprised. I'm 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 not surprised. Mm-hmm. The levels of trauma are severe and they're very high. Um, and what we think that we understand about trauma, and we haven't even experienced what they experience at that level, and we are already dealing with trauma, and we are already dealing with depression. Imagine adding that to that. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, men don't really speak about recovery and trauma, especially back in the days, because today I do have, in my counseling practice, I do have some males. It's a little different because I coach them through, okay, we're going to talk about this. Let me me take you here. Let me take you there. It's different. Back in the days of men, a man, they didn't complain. They didn't talk about trauma. They just keep going because they have to worry about their wife, their children, their this, their that. Uh, again, like I shared earlier, one of my clients, her husband was also in the military. He took his life. I mean, people don't want to leave their kids behind. And a lot of survivors of abuse uh, and, and or um, suicide, we share. It's not that we don't want to live. It's we want the pain to stop. So if you're a survivor of um, child abuse, I'm going to start first with, Astrid, um, if you can share what's your thought about that. It's not that we don't want to live. We don't want the pain to stop. Where are you at with that? Or where were you at with that when you also had to survive? Well, the funny thing is, because of the ways, like you said, there was so much trauma going on at the compartmentalized, what was the worst trauma? And bear the rest. Um, because at the top of that trauma chain was the suicide for me. Everything else paled in comparison. So it, it, it took me until I became a mother to understand that the raising that I had was abusive. For me, it was just surviving in a black family. You know, poverty was a way of life. Um, moving, t- moving all the time was a way of life. Sometimes not having a place to stay, having to stay with family members was a way of life. You know, instead of saying homelessness, poverty, food insecurity, you know, as an adult, yeah, we have more, you know, specific terms for it. But as a child, you just pretty much hold on like a koala bear and hope that the landing is soft. You know, so, again, this is another level of, you know, uh, trauma upon trauma upon trauma that we get so conditioned to that, um 
as a child, I can remember just compartmentalizing it. You know, how bad is it? You know, I've dealt with this, this, and this. You know, I think, yeah, I can bear that. You know, that's that's not so bad. You know, so and and and, and that's all we had. That was a that was a survival mechanism. You know, you had to be able to preserve some type of mental well-being by compartmentalizing, I guess, the way, you know, people who go through or or in the midst of real-time abuse can disassociate. You have to get into that survival mode, you know. So it was was things that, you know, even talking about it, you know, we realized (laughs) that was trauma. (laughs) That was abuse. Yeah, that was, no, that wasn't discipline. That was abuse. No, that wasn't growing up black. That was abuse. You know, so those are, you know, some things that um, it's funny because when we talk with our kids, our kids have no clue about the way, you know, we were raised. I was raised by a single mother who had gone through trauma. My husband um, also was raised by a mother who had gone through trauma, a single mom, and we have conversations similar raising. Our kids are completely clueless. We were like, what? Y'all deal with what? He must have did what? But we, I, we love our mother dearly. I, I wouldn't. I would do anything for my mother's life, protection, and health, you know, but we, we went through it. We all went through it. And if I went back far enough, and I think this is when my healing came in, I started going back before my life, looking into my mother's life. She herself ran away from home from an abusive grandmother. So, so the ways of trauma were generational, you know, through poverty, through dysfunction, through undiagnosed mental health challenges, through, you know, just the day-to-day challenges of, of, of growing up black in America, you know, so we had to learn how to survive, you know, and looking back for those that are far enough away from the trauma now can look back at it and kind of put labels on it and, and compartmentalize it. There are people who still, you know, in the midst of it and they're in the thick of it and they can't, you know, do anything but ride the wave, you know, but in riding that wave, it's, it's important, like with conversations tonight, to let people know that there are people who have experienced it. There are people who can kind of give you a roadmap on how not to fall in the pitfalls. There are people who survived it, so there is hope. Um, there are people who are on the other side of it, and they can tell you where the resources are. Um, so this conversations like tonight can be a lifesaver for a lot of people. Um, so I, I want to applaud you all for all that you do in regards to being that beacon for people because I can remember going through so much trauma and, you know, being so thankful to God of the things that I didn't go through. You know, I was <laughs> we were talking about some things there that I said, oh, wow, that could have been tragic. You know, that could have been, you know, and, and some people look at our lives and say, oh, my God, you've been through enough tragedy. I said, no, but I, I was saved from a whole lot more. You know, things could have been a whole lot worse. Um, you know, growing up, you know, during that time and, you know, not having protections in place and not having different resources and, you know, so we the survival was there. So, you know, you, in the recovery, the, the positive the positive message or the outcome was we survived it and we, we made it out. We, we are on the other side. And like Dr. Nancy had mentioned, you know, if you're looking at that bio, the bio looks like, some huge accomplishments with all those accolades, and I'm, I'm humbly here to tell you that was, you know, scratches and and and, and kicks and bruises and bumps, and uh, they, it was not pretty. There was nothing glamorous. It was not. It was um, 
it was it was tough. It was tough. It it, it was a, it, it is it was and is a labor of love um, because I I still will fight and advocate for children right now in these spaces, um, advocating for you know education in these spaces. You know helping to create more spaces or safe spaces for conversation, um, helping to teach people that they have to take charge of their own mental health and wellness teaching people that there is life beyond trauma. Um, it's, it's important that whatever that drive is or whatever the, the driving for me, the driving trauma and, and the drive and desire to get past it and to show that there is a height that is just as comparable as the low that we were in, that that's attainable. And so that's, that's, um, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. <laughs> So can can I interject in here? Yes, go ahead, Ms. Kelly. Sure. Um, sure. Um, yeah. Um, after you had mentioned about um, that your dad took his life or died of suicide, as now it's being called, um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about abandonment because I have worked with a lot of um, uh, women and men who mostly women. Um, who are into like a lot of drugs and alcohol. One of, one of the things that um, comes up a lot is um, them losing a family member to suicide. And um, I've, I've been to that point where I've wanted to, and the only reason I didn't is because I didn't want to leave my kids with that legacy because I've seen the the damage of um, that abandonment. Um, how how much have you have you felt that abandonment? I don't know. I think you mentioned the word, but I'm not sure. Absolutely, um, absolutely. And it was again, my my story wasn't linear. You know, I didn't get the news or or live with the trauma in real time in a linear fashion. You know, so when I got the news, I was already an adult. So I didn't know if that was a blessing that I wasn't raised with the knowledge, but the absence definitely created an issue for me as a young black girl in Atlanta being raised without a father. But I don't know if I would have rather lived with it growing up than waiting until I was a wife and a mother because that hit me like a ton of bricks. And I can remember I was right after I had my youngest son, you know, I was always crying. You know, so I couldn't tell if I was dealing with, you know, postpartum depression or I'm dealing with the grief of finding out about my father. You know, so I was just waves of just pity and, and, and things that I would never want to go back to. I didn't know, mean to know. laugh, but, but I can relate. Oh, I'm, I'm is, glad. Really I'm, manner, glad. But, yeah. I'm glad it's laughable now. I, I, I am glad. And, and that's a good thing. Because yeah. it's it's a good thing that you can get past it and right. you can find the, you know the brevity in it and and raise it up because in the moment in the moment it is to the point where you start questioning whether or not you want to be here or not. So it is a good thing to laugh at any point where you can be so far down in your trauma that later you can laugh at it. If you made yeah. it out. You made that's right. Yeah. yeah. Because um, I also want to mention that, um, you know, um, people don't understand why you're suffering through trauma and stuff. And you're, you're just with, like you were talking about all that crisis upon crisis upon crisis. And, and you really can't deal with it. And then I was going to therapy for quite a while. And all of a sudden I started having flashbacks, body memories, and this and that, you know. And I went to my therapist uh-huh. and I said, oh, my God, I'm getting worse. She goes, no, actually you're getting better. 
Um, yeah. You're in a safe space and you're safe enough to start remembering, mm-hmm. you know, and I thought if this is better, <laughs> you know, if this is better, I don't want better. <laughs> That's that's why I started being thankful that I didn't have that that knowledge as a child. Yeah. I'm yeah. glad I didn't yeah. do that. Well, that's what happened mm-hmm. to me too, and and I had um I had I paralyzed so much that I ended up being diagnosed with BPD and and having over uh, 31 personalities, and um each one of those you know had to basically tell their story you know. And I was locked up in a state hospital, and my grandparents raised me and found out that I'd been sexually abused before I was a year old. They never wrote it down on anything back then, you know. It was back in 63. And uh, and what they told my grandparents is don't ever tell her, because if you don't tell her, it will never affect her. Mm. Well, it did affect me, but like you said, I didn't find this out until after I had both my children and had been locked in a state hospital. I tell you what. It was hard to hear, but it was such an important piece of information. Mm-hmm. Things were clicking, click, 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 click. <laughs> you know? yeah, and the more information you. I found out about my life, the you know, and then the more memories I had about my about my life, and and start putting these puzzle pieces together, you know, and it felt like most of the puzzle pieces were out there blown in the wind somewhere, and I never find them, you know. I, I want to say something. Um, you know, uh, I really wanted just kind of to address, you know, that labor of love, life beyond trauma. I thought that that was really important. And also, you know, the importance of forgiving um, our loved ones. So I wanted to ask Astrid, I know we're getting, we have about 15 minutes left to the show. Um, did you forgive your mom? Did you forgive your family? Where did you get that area of forgiveness from? Well, I have to say it it, it, it comes from, so the question, <clears throat> the answer to that question is yes. I, I absolutely forgive um, my mother for what she went through. Um, and I forgive her for what, and, and I say it that way, and I'll explain why I say that way, what she went through and then what we went through together. Um because when we think about trauma, yes, trauma is about us, but sometimes a trauma is by proxy. It, it can be because of you're in proximity to someone else who's experiencing some challenge. Um, and a lot of times with parents, we think, and, and as a parent, as a parent, as a mother, as a PTA president, as a, as a principal, as an advocate for children, I would always say adults have it's mandatory that we get it right for children. But unfortunately, most times we don't get it right because they don't come with manuals and, and we, don't, we don't have parenting um, um, structure and frameworks built into our heads before we become parents. So that the, the, the forgiveness kind of has to come because most times the trauma that parents inflict on their children is because they themselves had experienced trauma, their parents had inflicted trauma on them, or their grandparents, or family members, or, you know, is it in, our, in my case, in our family's case, we were, you know, first traumatized by being black in America, and then our own internal struggles are the things that we dealt with. So I, I, I had to forgive. 
you know, because it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my mother's fault. It wasn't her mother's fault. It wasn't her mother's fault, you know, of of carrying, you know, those traumas. And it, But if we don't stop it, if we don't break that chain, if we don't recognize that it is dysfunction, if we don't put those support systems in place, if we don't look for help, if we don't build our toolkits, if we don't do what we know we should do, then it is our fault, you know, because there is there is help, you know. So if we don't put that help there, then we want to be miserable. We want to suffer. We want to, you know, so getting that word out and, you know, getting people connected to those resources is imperative. It's, it's, it's about survival, you know. And for me, forget, for survival was about forgiveness. Because even though it was mentioned before about the trauma, you carry it. And, I mean, you carry it, it changes. The, the packaging changes. You know, those memories don't go away. But you learn how to walk with that trauma. You learn, you change the narrative. You, 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 you position it differently in your heart, soul, and mind, you know, but it's still there. For me, being able to forgive, you know, was a way to even for me to help my mother because for for our relationship changed tremendously. It absolutely changed because, again, I was unaware of certain things that she dealt with as a child. And, you know, growing up now as an advocate for children, you know, those stories and things that I needed to hear from her, I'm helping her now become an advocate, you know, because she herself dealt with that abuse and dealt with, you know, the trauma, you know, of leaving home or running away from home as a child and dealing with abuse. You know, so those are things that, you know, we have to look at how we process it, how we let it define us, and, um, again, how do you build that resilience to go forward. Right. And so, like you okay, one of the things that we understand is hurt people do what? They hurt people. Yes, ma'am. Hurt people hurt people. And you said something that was very powerful in the area of recovery, you know. Um, and so when you're seeing someone who's taken the steps to be better, uh, when we when we see someone who's taken the steps to be better people, when we see someone who's taken the uh, the steps to recover, to heal, that's very powerful for recovery. So what would you say um, to to that as far as, you know, we can change? I mean, you may be going through this today, but you can always make a change. No matter what, where you are, no matter what you've done, and no matter where you've been, you can start a new chapter at any point at any time. Where what what would you say in that area as far as to someone who is like, nah, I'm not worthy. I did this. I did this. I did this. It's it's so funny because you know your life is what you define it. You know, not what other people define for you. Not um, it's so funny because when I was, I remember when I was in school, we used to do these um had these conversations about you know what you wanted to be when you grow up and you know in high school they would give you different aptitude tests to see what you would most likely be um more suited to 
you know, going into post-secondary or into your career field, you know, but we no longer do that. We no longer talk to people about the future. We no longer plan for anything except for something that's going to build, build into capitalism. You know, we don't, we don't have these, you know, deep philosophical conversations with young people anymore, you know, and I, and I think that's very, it's very necessary for us to be able to frame the hope and to frame what our futures look like, you know, instead of just the, you know, the drive for, for financial gain. You know, we're not building moral people. We're not building well-being. We're not building um, um, having these courageous conversations. You know, and I think this is something that's very important going forward. That you know, for us, with the we've lost connection with the elders. We don't we don't have these wise conversations, or, or there's not wisdom that 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 you know goes through you know a lot of these you know things that need to have you know uh, um, you need to have your uh, your elders present. Um, so I think that that's something that we need to start doing more of. You know, we think it's, we're going to come out with some new system, some new program. No, it, it's going to take us back to basics, you know, back to, you know, listening to those who know. It's going to go back to, you know, taking counsel. It's going to go back to, you know, good morals and good etiquettes and behaviors, how we treat each other. And it's going to be back to just that family kind of centered, let's have a conversation um, I think those are the things that are going to, you know, benefit us going forward um, in giving that support. And I think if we have more of that, we'll have less of these traumas or we'll at least have more connections with other humans so that we can get past the trauma or put the supports in place um, more more readily and more holistically, you know, than we have in the past. So hopefully, hopefully. We can do better. And and I think it really just comes down to the importance of us communicating and talking about it. And that's why it's so important to create the safe spaces where people can come together and just be genuine and talk about it, you know. Um, I want to make sure that we open up the mic. Um, any comments, anyone would like to make a comment or would like to ask questions regarding tonight's show, because we are actually getting closer to the end of the show tonight. Um, so if you would like to ask a question and or join the panel tonight, please do so now. I'm going to open up the mic for everyone in case anyone has a comment or would like to join. Well, this is Victoria again. And this is probably not the right time to bring anything up like this. <laughs> I feel like I have You're to. Good. Um, oh, <laughs> it's like no the end. But um, um, you were talking about, for instance, um, black people don't go to therapy and, and things like that. I grew up in a all white neighborhood and and the only person of color we had was um an oriental girl who was raised from baby in a white family rich white family and uh it was it's very interesting to me that a lot of my white friends will say i'm not racist i'm not racist 
And, you know, there's so much uh, internalized racism that we don't even know about. And uh, um, I'd really like to have starting some conversations about that, too. Um, I think we need to be able to um, um, find out what our differences are. But although we all have differences, um, to also find out what our commonalities are. But I don't know that we're going to make a whole lot of growth in, in that connection and until uh, we start having these conversations. Is that make any sense? Yeah. I think it's so it's good that you brought that up because I feel like, you know, a lot of times um people don't feel comfortable talking about diversity. And I think mm-hmm. that the more we talk, um the more we get educated, um, as far as how to better interact, how to better come together. Um, and we have to really understand and respect the difference in diversity and really understand um, some of the struggles from the past. Um, you know, I took a history class. I took an African-American history class, and it mm-hmm. blew my mind. Um, and so maybe another day, maybe the, another session. Yeah, well, yeah, do, uh, do it'll be another day. But I just want to interject it, yeah. No, but it was brought that up. Uh, I just wanted to address what your comment was. Um, I do want to make sure that we do address that topic at some point because I really feel that um, the fact that you so concerned to it, I'm sorry, I hear a lot of background. I don't know whose background it is. I'm about to mute everybody's mic. Um, The background's so loud. Um, But... um, I feel that the more we talk about it, uh, the better we can heal. Um, And there is a lot of still hurt and distance because we don't know how to talk about um, the area of diversity and how to better create inclusion, how to better create um, a supportive system and all of that. So I think that the more we talk about it, the better we'll be as a community. So I just wanted to applaud you, applaud you um, Victoria Kelly, for even bringing that topic up and showing concern enough to bring that topic up. So um, I want to make sure that, you know, tonight we may not be able to address that topic, but we will come back. And we'll come back as a community. that will come from a place of love and education. Um, again, I took a class at um, Spelman uh, in that area of diversity, inclusion, equity, and inclusion. And I've been doing corporate clients, working with businesses. And yesterday I was working, I had to go and counsel 16 staff members um, at that office. So that's something that people are starting to really take an interest in. So thank you for bringing that topic up. All right, so we have two minutes. I want to make sure that I give our special guest, Astrid, a moment just to close us out um, and to talk about just today where she's at. I know it's two minutes. I'm just going to get going now. Okay. Well, I want to thank you for having me on. Um, It's definitely any time I get to speak on mental health and wellness, which is very important, um, because we always leave out the wellness part because health can be ill health as well. Um, when we talk about wellness, it brings about intentionality, meaning that we are making sure 
that we are in a place of goodness and well-being and and homeostasis and functionality um, and making sure that we, you know, can connect people to resources and that we can share this lived experiences that we're all having, you know, in the best way um, to reduce, you know, the nicks and bruises we get when we get close to each other in proximity um, and that we can kind of live in harmony. Um, I think it's very important to have organizations like this because when those things are not as harmonious as they should be, you should have other humans in place to kind of buffer um, the, the dysfunction that happens, you know. But again, you know, letting people know that, you know, there are people here for you. There's someone who's been through it. There's someone who understands it. There's someone who knows where resources are. There's someone on this planet that can connect with you as another human being. Is I think it's the biggest, um, biggest thing we mm-hmm. need to because in the in the midst of our anxiety and depression, and when we get into these dark places, the biggest problem we have is that we feel so alone. And we're hmm. we're never we're never alone. So thank you all for all that you've done and and letting people know that they're not alone. Thank you, and thank you for for reminding us of that. We're not alone. Um, again, you can check us out on NASCA dot org. We are on scan number three 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 three. My favorite number. Um, thank you, Astrid, uh, for coming on tonight, Astrid. Uh, your blessing. Thank you. May you continue to do the service in the community. And everyone, have a good night. Good night. Good night, Doc. Thank you, Dr. Nancy. Thank you. Another tomorrow. Cause that's gone.